Welcome to episode 104 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's February 7th, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss disease, illness, and religion in 17th and 18th century French Canada. Our guest today is Mary Dunn, who's an associate professor of theological studies at St. Louis University, just up the road from me in St. Louis, Missouri. She's also the director of the Center for Research on Global Catholicism, with broader interests in early modern Christianity, sickness, disability, and saints and sanctity. Mary has written three books so far. The first is From Mother to Son, Selected Letters from Marie de l'Incarnation to Claude Martin with Oxford University Press in 2014. And the second is The Cruelest of All Mothers, Marie de l'Incarnation, Motherhood and the Christian Tradition with Fordham University Press in 2016. And the book we're going to be discussing today, Where Paralytics Walk and the Blind Sea, Stories of Sickness and Disability at the Juncture of Worlds with Princeton University Press, which came out last year. Mary has much more written, including another book she has edited and multiple journal articles on early modern Christianity, theology, and of course, Jesuits. So hi, Mary. Hi. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Now, Merle, we're kind of starting 2023 with a bang series of recordings, right? So like three in a week and a half. So I'm definitely getting some early COVID vibes, the good old days when we used to record every week and seem to have nothing better to do. Today, however, I think we're actually going to visit a place which we haven't featured frequently on the podcast. So Canada and French Canada, specifically in the early modern period. And our topic, I think, is also somewhat unusual compared to other episodes we've had on this podcast. We're going to discuss some of the different approaches to illness and disease. I think we've better covered the United States version of things before and after independence. So hopefully looking at French Canada will offer us some new stories to understand these narratives of human health and maybe also feature in the next pandemics class that either of us teach. Now, I also look forward to discussing disability studies in greater depth. I mean, as a field, it might not be exactly at the core of what this podcast is about, but it's clearly connected to our interests, perhaps most obviously as the potential aftermath of at least some infectious diseases. I think the example we briefly touched upon that I remember that comes to my mind is the polio case with Dora Varga that, that we covered some 40 episodes ago, and we can also look at smallpox, which just came to mind as well. And I think that two should probably feature more strongly in the stories we today tell of infectious diseases in, in the past. Yeah, I think those are two good points. First, it's good to talk about our neighbor to the north, Canada. We've actually had, I think, a large number of Canadian guests, if I recall, Lee, but none of them actually work on Canada. Most of them actually happen to be medievalists, if I remember. So maybe there's a connection between medievalists and Canada that we're unaware of. But yeah, you also bring up another good point, which is disability research and studies has featured, for your example, with Dora Varga, or more recently, actually, Helen Ree, where we touched on ideas of illness and pain and its aftermath as well, although I don't think we necessarily focused solely on the term disability, right? All of this goes to show, I think, at least how much, I would say, our field, at least a pre-modern disease, focuses on what we'll talk about today are very biomedical ideas, Right. You get infected and then you die or you get better, right? I think people, for example, work on leprosy in the medieval period, think about disability and these types of questions a little more. But I also think this is a subject that needs to be talked about some more, right? How to include 
other stories than just you know death and destruction, for lack of a better term. And I think this is one way to do that differently. Yeah. So after that introduction, Merle, how are you doing? I mean, are you already teaching energetically in your spring semester? Yeah, I'd like to think I'm a very energetic, fun professor, very excited and excitable. Is that good enough for you, Lee? But on a serious note, we've already reached the end of the Flavians in my Roman Empire course. So we're rapidly moving into late antiquity as quickly as I can move us into late antiquity. You'd be surprised to know. And in my methods course, we're already discussing intellectual history, which I have to say has been a lot of fun teaching the methods course as I try to explain to my students how studying the field of history has changed over the last 100 years in various types of history in like four or five minute snippets, right? So rather than giving them something to read about the development of social history, the development of intellectual history, just kind of trying to distill it because I know, unlike me and even not you, Lee, not everyone likes to read these kind of navel-gazing kind of intellectual thoughts on your own field. You know, Merle, I think the next step in distilling the, the main message is just like you recording some TikTok videos and just like going intellectual history on TikTok. Define that. Go. Well, actually, Lee, as I think I mentioned to you off this podcast, the state of Oklahoma has banned the use of TikTok on all government devices, which effectively means all Wi-Fi at Oklahoma State University. So I believe you sent me a TikTok to watch recently, and I could not open it at my office. I could only open it at my house. Now, we could have a discussion as you, as loving the free market and hating big governmently, said as a joke, what you think about that. TikTok is banned, so you still can use, I think, YouTube shorts, right? Short videos. You can also do that if you really want to. No, no, that's it. And I'll just say the other thing that's nice is I'm in the fun part of the semester that probably two of you can agree on where I'm not yet doing any heavy grading. So it's mostly just lesson planning and you know lecturing and questions and seminars. So all the fun stuff that we like to do at the beginning before you get slammed with all the stuff that you don't actually want to do, even though there's a pedagogical reason to do it. But you know, with that discussion about me teaching, Lee, are you off partying and teaching? You were somewhere rural, you told me, with no internet. And I didn't know there was a place that was rural in Israel and also didn't have the internet. I thought the story that's always told to me is Israel's the land of everyone has five cell phones and is constantly talking on them and attached to Wi-Fi. Okay, so there was no internet in my particular situation. There was internet where I was at, I mean, more broadly. So this was a religious community over the weekend. So because they kept Shabbat, so Saturday, and we were staying at a like hosting family because it's like a family event. So we were basically stuck with no way to access their Wi-Fi at home. And also the rooms in which we were staying just had no cell reception. Right? So if I wanted to connect back to the world, I had to go out and it was raining all the time. So that's the combination of reasons why I didn't have internet. Very briefly, whenever I think about you describing, you know, ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel, I just remember that time when you were giving our class a tour on the bus around Jerusalem and were telling most of the other students, obviously I'm quite familiar with the ultra-Orthodox community, but describing how these communities work and how like their cell phones work, for example, to all the students in our class was actually very eye-opening to them. We'll leave it at that. 
part of my tour guide days. I used to do this actually before academia. But this was actually not an ultra-Orthodox community. It was a modern Orthodox community, which is a bit different. But I mean, other than that, uh, not much has changed since the previous episode. It's still cold here. We still have our political issues. None of that has been resolved. I'm checking writing assignments for my students in the pandemics class I taught the fall semester. And I gave them like the selection of whether to write about the movie Contagion, which I'm sure, Morel, you would appreciate, or play either a board game or a video game that's focused on disease. So I think actually we've covered both of them on this podcast as well, right? Pandemic, the board game, Plague Inc. I mean, the cell phone game more than a video game. And I have to say that I haven't looked at everything yet, but it seems that somewhere around 75% or 80% that actually chose Contagion rather than either game. Well, enjoy reading a hundred or whatever number of essays on contagion before your eyes, you know, bleed in boredom, but have fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what it is. They're very much looking at the comparison to COVID, which I guess is obvious. So uh, next time I teach the course, I think maybe I should spend a little more time on discussing the movie. Well, my remembrance of contagion when it comes to COVID, as I remember, there's this great still where it juxtaposes scenes from contagion with real life events in the UK when it comes to COVID. Very powerful image. Life imitates art or whatever. But how are you, Mary? How are you doing? Where are you at now? I'm doing just fine. I'm in St. Louis. As you know, I teach at St. Louis University. It is, yes, the beginning of the semester here. I'm actually teaching a course on body disease and healing this semester for our graduate students. I'm teaching Helen Rees' book next week. So it's neat to hear that she's been on the podcast. She's visiting our class by Zoom, so we'll connect over that. But it's been a great course so far, really helpful for me. One of those graduate seminars that actually really does intersect with the work I do. And I've had a hard time making that happen in the past. So it's been a real joy thus far this semester. And that's it, because at St. Louis University, as you mentioned, I direct the Center for Research on Global Catholicism, which comes with its own kind of workload, no paper grading, but a lot of events and coordination and administration. So continuing to try to get that going. What's the time frame you cover on the course? Well, as you know, I'm an early modernist, but we start in antiquity. And we started with Andrew Chrislip's book, Thorns in the Flesh, and talked about Jonathan Zecker's new book, Spiritual Direction as Medical Art in Early Christian Monasticism. And then we go on up to the modern era. Yeah, it's always good to hear that every university works broadly, at least in the United States, the same, right? If they slam you with some administrative stuff, they at least give you some kind of relief on other aspects. Absolutely. So now I want to start off with broad questions to set the time and place for our listeners. So as I always ask my unfair question first, can you give us a very brief history of, you know, Quebec in the 17th and 18th century and maybe early modern Canada, if you want more broadly? Sure. Yeah. And I'll try to keep it brief. I mean, obviously the prehistory of French settlement in Quebec recognizes the presence of indigenous peoples, including the Inuit, the Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee, who become really important interlocutors for the French when the French finally arrive. But the history of French settlement along this St. Lawrence River Valley really begins in about 1534, when Jacques Cartier put a cross on the Gaspé Peninsula, which is right at the end of the St. Lawrence River, kind of the mouth where it meets the sea. 
He returned a couple of times, and each time these were exploratory trips that were intended to settle the region and then ultimately to extract resources, you know, the familiar colonial story. But settlement was really hard to do in Quebec, primarily, I think because to the French, this was inhospitable territory, mostly for climate reasons. So finally, in about 1608, Quebec is founded by Samuel de Champlain, and it grows in fits and starts until about 1663, when it finally comes under the kind of governance of the crown. So Louis XIV at this point. And at this point, Quebec starts to grow. The many different Catholic orders have been there at this point. The indigenous populations are starting to be subdued by the French and settlement really takes off. And then ultimately, Quebec falls to the English in 1760 and just you know becomes part of North America as we know it. So who are the Jesuits and how do they fit into this entire story? Yeah, so the Jesuits are a counter-reformation order of male religious founded in 1540 by Ignatius Loyola, who was a Spanish soldier turned religious man. So the old story goes that he was wounded in battle and he was convalescing somewhere in Spain and had a series of visions mostly prompted by his encounter with Catholic literary texts and started to gather a group of young men around him and ultimately founded the Jesuit order. So the Jesuits end up in New France as part of their missionary expansion in the early 17th century. So they really start to kind of take off in New France around 1625. And they're really important for the history of New France, first of all, because they were there and they were expanding ever outward, ever westward, ever northward, and encountering the indigenous people. But the other reason they're so important for the history of New France is that they produced a lot of texts on this region and in this time period. And the Jesuit relations, which I can talk a little bit about more later, were these series of annual journals that the Jesuits produced in the context of the mission and sent back to France. So apparently people in France just awaited the arrival of new installments of the Jesuit relations like it was some, you know, version of like People magazine. They just they couldn't wait to read it. So incredibly important historians and ethnographers of the time period. Right. And how many Jesuits would be active in New France at any point in time, let's say over the 17th and 18th centuries? I'm asking because I guess it matters whether this is like a tiny group of elites who are just producing a lot of texts or are they a broader group of people that produce some texts? So, I mean, how would you define them in that regard? I would define them as a tiny group of elites producing an enormous quantity of texts. That's really what they were. I mean, at any given point, there were really only a handful of Jesuits in New France at any one time, but they wrote voluminously. And they also ran a seminary for the education of residents in Quebec and ultimately founded a network of schools in Canada. But in this early stage of the 17th century, they're just relentless chroniclers of the mission. And it really enables the historiography of this time and place. So can I ask, I guess, one other question, maybe, and mostly because I'm not an early modernist, probably, why the Jesuits and not some other Catholic religious order as we think about it, right? I mean, there's a million different groups running around that at least I'm more familiar with than, say, the High Middle Ages. So why is it the Jesuits 
win this battle, right? All the universities, your university is Jesuit. Why them? Yeah, it's such a great question. So I'm going to say two things. One, the Recollects, which are like a branch, you probably know this, Merle, but these, they were a branch of the Franciscans. They were in New France first. I think there were four of them. And their mission never really took off. And part of the reason why their mission didn't take off in New France, according to you know historiographical assessment, is that they were too rigid. They had this very firm sense of what a Christian life should look like. And it just never took with indigenous populations. And when the Jesuits finally arrived, you know, as you know, later in the early modern period, the Jesuits get in trouble for what they became known for, which is this really accommodation of strategy that was adaptive to the different cultures they encountered. But I do think it was probably in part the success of the Jesuit, as they say, way of proceeding that maybe led to some of the Jesuit successes ultimately in New France, although that was very hard one. The other thing that maybe explains Jesuit presence is that they were an ultramontane order, which, you know, for listeners, an ultramontane order is an order that owes allegiance to the Pope alone. So ultramontanism derives from the Latin term meaning over the mountains. So their duty was primarily to the Pope and not to governments or states or political leaders. So that may have had something to do with their broad missionary expansion, too. But I think others would be more equipped to answer why the Jesuits beyond that. And would these Jesuits, what would their identity be like, right? Would they see themselves as French citizens who just happen to go overseas, do their tour and come back? Do some of them maybe think about like, I don't know, settling down, so to speak, in Canada? I mean, are they kind of like, transcending all this and have a, a religious identity primarily and the location matters much less to them? Yeah, such a great question. So first of all, people were, this is like pun intended here, dying to go to New France, in part because it offered such unprecedented opportunities for martyrdom. And so like basically the more unattractive the region, the hungrier Jesuits were, and many early modern Catholics were to go there because it offered unparalleled opportunity for sacrifice and imitation of Christ. So this is all over the early modern sources, particularly in France at this time period, people just really aching to go and serve in Canada. But Jesuits would go back and forth across the Atlantic. So a number of them went to New France and then returned to France and sometimes even went back to New France. So there was a constant exchange across the Atlantic. I would just want to mention one book that I think is really illuminating in terms of there's so much literature on whether the Jesuits had a primarily, you know, political identity or religious identity. I think we shouldn't discount the authenticity of their religious identity. I think that's so easy to do. My training is in the secular study of religion. And so this is something we do very easily. However, I think one book that does such a great job of showing Jesuit entanglement with French ambitions of empire is Bronwyn McShay's Apostles of Empire. And this is a book that really situates the Jesuits themselves within French imperial ambitions and sees them as agents of empire. I agree with that assessment. I think that's 100% true. And at the same time, there is this other part of the Jesuits that is just totally driven in a way that's so hard to understand from our secular point of view, so driven to imitate you know, their God and imitate sacrifice and imitate, you know, kind of the cross in this experience of martyrdom. 
So I have a lot of questions that we could pick up on our other podcast on martyrdom. So I'll leave those aside for now. It's a joke. We don't actually have another podcast, but we talk about this as if we're going to constantly found podcasts. One is enough. But maybe I'll ask you another unfair question. I guess I'm a fan of unfair questions today that, you know, you're saying you're teaching graduate students in your seminar, right? So the unfair question you always ask is, so you're talking about the 17th and 18th century, right? And we're going to talk now about illness and disease in this time. How is it different from what comes before and what comes after? Well, one of the things that's been so illuminating, or maybe not illuminating, maybe even just confirming about teaching this course on body disease and healing for my graduate students, is that so many of the ways of making meaning of illness that people like Chrislip and Jonathan Zucker and Helen Reed are seeing in these early Christian sources are still present in the early modern sources. However, one thing that illness could be a grounds for the cultivation of virtue, it can be a means of imitating Christ, a kind of divine experience, or at least an approximation of divine experience. Then, of course, we also see this consistency of the notion that health wasn't something that's just about the body, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but that it was a matter of body and soul together, such that it doesn't make sense to talk about body as one thing and soul as another. There's also the continuity of the moral dimension of disease. I will say, one thing I think that I see in the early modern sources, especially in contrast to these late antique sources, is that you have a much heavier emphasis by the early modern period on the virtue of suffering, on illness itself as a means of imitating Christ. So, I'll say one small thing and then I'll stop. But, you know, when, when we think of the late antique period, one saint's life that comes to mind is the life of Antony, in which Antony emerges from his cave after like decades of horrible, brutal practices of self-mortification in this miraculous state of perfect health. And so it's like health equals sanctity in that life. That's really nowhere in the early modern sources that I've looked at where health equals sanctity. There's a much heavier emphasis on illness equaling sanctity or being the grounds for the cultivation of sanctity. But if we move forward, I mean, maybe the late medieval period, right? So broadly speaking, let's say 14, 15, 16th centuries, and we look to 17, 18th century France and Canada, would you say there is a break between ideas about illness and disease? between those two periods, so 14th, 16th century and 17th, 18th century, is something new happening or is it just like a more a gradual development? I'm not sure if something new is happening. I mean, I think you certainly see by the 17th and 18th century, maybe the emergence of what I you know begin with in the book, which is this biomechanical model of the body, of illness and of health. And in a way, you know, some of the sources I'm dealing with are almost better classified as like the tail end, I think particularly of the hagiography of Catherine of St. Augustine. They're almost better described as like the tail end of some kind of medieval Catholicism. I mean, this really broke representation of mordant suffering. That doesn't really have a place in much of the hagiography one sees typically from the 17th and 18th centuries. And so in that way, it's a little bit of a holdover. And you could ask the question, maybe in that regard, was there something different about Canada? And I think there is something different about Canada. And it's almost as if in some ways, Canada 
you know, I don't want to speak linearly, but I'm going to, like in a sense, like Canada lags behind developments in France for various reasons. One of those reasons, I think, is that there was much more Catholic homogeneity in New France. Protestants were barred from migrating to French Canada for quite a while. And there is this more medieval version of Catholicism that ends up surviving in Canada. Yeah. And in your book, you often discuss embodied difference. So what exactly would that mean as a concept? I adopted this term from Sharon Snyder and David Mitchell, two disability studies scholars, whose term narrative prosthesis I bring to bear in one of the chapters. But I like this term for a couple of reasons. One, as one of you mentioned earlier in the podcast, one was as a means of avoiding the terminological difficulties that arise when you try to separate sickness or illness from disability. You know, there's this whole gray area in between. When does illness give rise to disability? When does disability itself create sickness or illness? And I know there are distinctions between even those terms alone. In the beginning of the process of writing this book, I was trying to work out the differences between these two terms. And I found that I couldn't, and I don't really think that anybody can. And so embodied difference was a term I used to capture both sickness and disability and everything in between. It was also a way of disentangling sickness and disability and all of that gray area in between from the normative judgments we so often impose upon them. So simply, you know, disability, there's a certain etymological origin to that word signifying lack or disorder of some kind. And I was really trying to kind of free up space to let these narratives speak for themselves. Can we really think of Catherine de St. Augustine's abused and compromised body in her hagiography as something best defined by lack? Well, not in this way that her hagiography makes sense of it. It's in fact like additive. And so the term in body difference was a way of negotiating between all these things. So you've mentioned a couple of your sources, right? The People magazine of the 17th century was one of them. I think I'm going to use that in some form. I don't know about your source, but about one of my sources. I think I'm going to start using it when I teach. But could you maybe just tell us what they are? And you've mentioned a couple others and then maybe pick one and tell us kind of what are some discussions and goals that that text maybe has when it talks about illness? There are four primary sources that serve the as I put it in the book, the raw materials for the analysis. So the first is the People Magazine of New France, the Jesuit relations. And as I mentioned, these were a series of annual reports on the mission that were produced annually between 1632 and 1673. They were directed toward a French lay readership. And they are such interesting documents because they're equal parts travel log, ethnography, historiography, religious reflection, all of these neat little anecdotes. Then a second source I relied on was the Histoire de l'Hôtel Dieu de Québec, which is a monastic history, basically, of the first hospital in North America. And this particular text spoke to an audience of female religious. The way I understand this text is that it's an inward-focused text, more about kind of crafting hospitaler identity that worked itself out in the context of this hospital. The third source I work with is this hagiography of Catherine de St. Augustine, written by a Jesuit that I talk a bit about. Catherine de St. Augustine was one of the first nuns who served at the Hotel Dieu in Quebec. 
And then finally, I examine a set of 22 miracles attributed not to a Jesuit, not to a hospitaller nun, but to a recollect brother named uh, Frère Didas Pelletier. So this last source gives us a sense of lay kind of popular understandings of sickness, of disability in the context of miracle stories. Okay, so those are the four sources, which I guess are a bit different, but with regards to their audiences, their genres, of course. How would the illness narratives within these sources look like? And what would be the different goals of these sources? And maybe if I'll have another follow-up. So how different is all this from today, from the way, I guess, mainstream or like the broad public discourse sees illness today? I'll just take the example, let's say, of the Histoire, this monastic chronicle of the Hotel Dieu in Quebec. So one of the things, this is like, you know, the problem that historian <laughs> encounters when doing research. So I was certain that this text, this history of this hospital was going to give me plenty of patient narratives. After all, this is what these nuns were doing all day long. They were taking care of the sick. And this particular history chronicles over the course of about 70 years, the history of this hospital. So it would have seemed to me that there would have been plenty of raw material for me to work with. Instead, what I found in this book was that there were very, very few stories of patients and many more stories of sick and ailing nuns themselves. And so this was the question for me, why are they telling these stories? Why are they rendering sickness in this way? And why are the occasional stories of patient illness highlighted in these texts in the midst of all of these stories of sick and ailing nuns? I'll tell you one really short, great story of a patient. What I found in all of these cases that these narratives of illness were designed to kind of draw the boundaries of hospitaler identity. So what does a nun dedicated to service at the Hotel Dieu Quebec, what does she look like? What does she act like? What are her commitments? What are her values? This was a text that was aiming to shape its readership. You know, and again, this is an internal text directed towards these nuns. So the, the rare stories that you get about patients in these texts are also oriented toward this end. So there's a great story of, I think, someone who's described as an obstinate heretic. And naturally, this is just, you know, some Protestant who managed to migrate to Quebec. And the nuns are trying to get through to him. They're trying to convert him, body and soul. They're trying to rehabilitate his body. They're trying to save his soul. So, you know, they want to restore him to health and they want to convert him to Catholicism. But he is just obstinate and recalcitrant and won't change until finally one of the nuns who actually happens to be Catherine de Saint Augustine grinds up the bones of Jean de Brébeuf, who was one of the Jesuits recently martyred among the Haudenosaunee, and pours it into a drink. And the obstinate heretic, quote unquote, drinks the drink and miraculously he recovers and converts to Catholicism. So these were stories that just tried to drive home the point that what these nuns were up to was the rehabilitation of sick and ailing, unities of body and soul. So this was a vocation that was oriented as much to religious objectives as it was to objectives of physical health. Okay, I actually have a lot of directions I could take this towards. I mean, first of all, it, it really reminds me of Byzantine miracle stories. I mean, it's actually very similar. Some of the Byzantine health-related miracle stories that I know. But uh, I'm going to ask about the 
readership or the audience of this text, right? So you mentioned this was an internal text written for, I guess, internal consumption in some shape or form. Do you know how the nuns interacted with this text? I mean, would they like, I don't know, read from this during meals or something? Or would it just sit in their library? I mean, how would their identity be shaped by this text? That's a great question. So we know that it was kept in their own library collections. And we know it was also a text that was written by multiple authors. So this seems to have been a text produced within the community with a variety of input from members of the community. So it's kind of a, in that sense, like a crowdsourced history of this hospital. It's possible. I don't know about whether it was read in aloud to the nuns. I think it's very likely that it was. It was known to the nuns. As I said, it was contributed to by a number of the nuns. So I think it had. It was certainly not a privately composed text that then was tucked away and never seen again. I think it was widely known and shared among this community. It definitely seemed to have in that sense, like a public orientation, but within the scope of the community. And was kind of one of the purposes, perhaps also to, I mean, set examples and go out and, you know, be a good example of how to, you know, evangelize as well. I mean, there's got to be an interaction here, I assume with indigenous communities, whether it's this text or other texts. So how does that also factor in rather than just obstinate heretics? Okay, so the nuns, of course, were cloistered. So all of the female orders after the Council of Trent were cloistered. So I like to think of this text as drawing a portrait of a hospitaller nun who was a missionary. But as I mentioned in the book, this was a kind of missionary activity where the flow of traffic was reversed. So whereas the Jesuits went out into indigenous communities, the nuns welcomed indigenous patients. So when the nuns first came to Quebec, they served an indigenous community. That's why they were there. But much like the Ursulines who came from France to serve as teachers for indigenous girls, very quickly, their vocation shifted to tend to the needs of a migrant French population instead. So there are a couple of stories in the histoire of indigenous patients being treated. But absolutely, I think this text was all about forming identity and giving exemplary stories that showed a nun how she should engage in her vocation, how she should treat and how she should heal. So one of the interesting things, and I find this just a really interesting knot that I haven't quite been able to untangle and still sort of working through with my graduate students, but one of the expectations in this book that is suggested to these nuns is that in caring for the sick, you will get sick. But there's a way in which like this vocation of healing the bodies of others, and of course, healing their souls too, ultimately damages the bodies of the nuns, but heals their souls. So there is this really interesting fungibility in the way I read the text between caregiver and cared for. They are both kind of working on their own health. The nuns are serving others and they are trying to heal others, but at the same time, they're trying to heal themselves. And what does healing mean? Well, it means physical health in some small dimensions, but ultimately it means salvation. That's the big picture here. So maybe not the nuns, but your other texts, right, when it comes to the Jesuits, right, when people are going out and trying to convert indigenous populations, is there a sophisticated theological approach that they're trying to teach, right, in terms of catechism and all this stuff? Or is it like, you know, pretty simple, straightforward 
conversion and then what people believe, it can be a little murky kind of in a sense of more of the late antique context that I'm more familiar with. That's a great question. So one of the things about the recollects was that you know they preceded the Jesuits as missionaries. They would try to convert vast swaths of people and the conversions didn't, this is a Jesuit narrative now, channeling the Jesuits here. The recollect conversions didn't really stick because it wasn't authentic conversion. I think the Jesuits that came in the middle of the 17th century were much more deliberate in trying to guarantee as much as they could that conversions were authentic, that there was some modicum of belief and acceptance of Catholic dogma. So one of the interesting things about Jesuit mission activity and Jesuit preaching is that they had a really difficult time in communicating complex theological ideas to an indigenous audience. You know, especially like it's just clash of cultures. Lots of things were lost in translation, so to speak. Jesuits were really well known for writing catechisms in indigenous languages and making a big effort to accommodate. But the other thing that they did frequently, and I know they did this in the context of the missions to New France, although there's less material evidence for it, they used pictures a lot. So lots of material props. And this is consistent with what we know about Jesuit rhetorical practice, you know, even in the European context. But lots of pictures of hell that will often kind of do the trick (laughs) of conversion. And also just consistent with this idea of, you know, kind of the Ciceronian rhetor, which is really important for Jesuit formation. The Jesuits really tried, and I'd be happy to say more about this in the context of sickness, the Jesuits really tried to model a kind of behavior that was itself alluring in some way to the indigenous populations. My sense is that this was much less about, you know, ideological conversion than it was about some other kind of like behavioral conversion or simply fear. Right. So maybe to transition to another broader, I guess, topic that we would want to cover in this conversation, we kind of mentioned earlier on in the introduction that one of the fields in which you work and explicitly use is disability studies. And that did also come across a bit in your previous answers. So maybe could you tell us a little more about disability studies as a field? I mean, obviously, other than it being touching disabilities, broadly speaking. So what is it as a field and how does it help you? So disability studies, I would define as profoundly interdisciplinary. I think most would. In a way, it's kind of a transdiscipline in that it intersects with a number of other humanities and non-humanities disciplines. So. Disability studies really came of age and beginning in the 1980s. Uh, It's really taking off these days. There's a ton, as you both know, there's a ton in the late antique period engaging with disability studies. But different approaches to the study of disability has sought to situate it, has really sought to push back against this biomechanical model of disability as something wrong with the body, like a malfunction of the body and has instead, instead in various disciplinary contexts tried to situate disability as a social phenomenon or as a cultural phenomenon. So the cultural model is one that takes seriously both bodies and societies. The social model is more of a response to disability that essentially says, you know, I paraphrase, disability is not a problem with the body. It's a problem with how society responds to this body that's constructed in this way. So. 
there's been a lot on reading disability and what meanings are made of disability from these social and cultural perspectives in literary studies, in history, in biblical studies, and of course, you know, in political history and the arts. So, you know, it really is a field of study that crosses disciplinary boundaries. I found it to be a really helpful way of just having a new purchase on some familiar texts. So when I looked at the life of Catherine of St. Augustine, one of the open questions there for me was, what is this kind of crazy Baroque instance of hagiography doing in the early modern period? Like why such a hyper-focus on this body that just seems to be so compromised in all of these various ways, like chronically suffering, even paralyzed at some points, partly blinded at some points, you know, what's up with all this focus on the body? And so for me, disability studies, particularly in the way that it works in literary studies or has been kind of thought about in the context of literary studies, it was a really helpful angle onto this particular literary text and helped me think in new ways beyond just those theological models of, oh, this is imitatio Christi. This is simply another version of imitation of Christ. It helped me just come at this text from a new angle and really focus on the body in particular and the social world in which this body is being made meaningful. Out of curiosity, I guess more for our own interest, but obviously other academics, are there ways in which people across disciplines and across time periods, let's say within history, come together to whether it be a big conference or you all work together methodologically? Or is it much more situated still in individual fields and people work on it as like a thematic approach, for example? Yeah, the conversations I've been a part of tended to be in these bigger disciplinary conferences, you know, where there's a unit on disability studies. So that's primarily how it's been. But it always seems like no matter what conference you go to, whether it's the Renaissance Society or the American Academy of Religion or the AHA, there's always a disability studies segment. But it seems that in at least the field of Catholic studies, which I'm a part of, it does seem like there's a lot of energy now around what can disability studies show us about Catholic studies and what can Catholic studies add to disability studies and just kind of thinking about what you get when you add these two things together. So I find those conversations fun to be a part of. And where are the limits of disability studies as a field? And from your perspective, I mean, you mentioned earlier the kind of gray area between disability and illness sickness. So how does that play within disability studies as a distinct field, question mark, I guess in parentheses, as opposed to broader studies of of human health and illness? Well, one of the problems I think that at least the social and cultural model of disability studies has encountered from my perspective is that it doesn't take the body seriously enough. And I think there's some movement now to thinking about from a phenomenological perspective, like a Merleau-Ponty type of perspective, what does the world look like when you're in a body that, you know, has a motor impairment or has a sensory impairment or, you know, is neurologically different? How do you interface with the world? I mean, the social and cultural models of disability studies, particularly the former, didn't take a body seriously. And so I think, you know, we're getting back to thinking about what difference it makes to live in a body that is different from other bodies in terms of walking through the world and experiencing the world. That's been a shortcoming 
I think, thus far of disability studies. I think people have not wanted to go there because it seems in some ways to double down on this idea that what disability is is a problem with the body that needs to be fixed. And if you can't fix it, well, then you're just stuck with the problem. And these other ways have been trying to think about disability is just the human condition, but the overemphasis has been on the social meaning of disability as opposed to the phenomenological experience of living in a disabled body. Can I ask maybe one last follow-up question in this little section? Is there also a debate within the field, I'm thinking here of histories of disease, where there's this debate over retrospective diagnoses, right? How do you know what the disease is kind of thing? And this is this never-ending question in histories of disease. Does that also exist in disability studies where there's like a debate over, can you diagnose or can you identify whatever the thing is? if the person either A, doesn't say it in their own words or whatever it might be? I don't know enough. I just really don't like those approaches. I find them so, so like off the mark, just totally missing the point. You know, to me, like a lot of those approaches oftentimes, I mean, I'm sure in your own work, like you've come upon these modern studies of medieval miracles. I mean, I can think of a study or two that tries to understand, well, how is it that these could be, and maybe your students ask these same kind of questions, but how is it that this could have happened? You know, what do you think was really happening? But the question is always framed as if, like, our modern scientific approaches are exactly right. I mean, it's a totally ahistorical way of posing the question. And by that, I mean, like, not so much that our concepts don't map onto the ancient world. It's that one day, our concepts are going to be thought as like, <laughs> just as crazy and inaccurate as the demonic possession arguments of centuries past. So I don't like those strategies of trying to retrospectively diagnose what was going on, because I think it misses the point of how people in a particular context made meaning of what was happening to them. And I think it gets you into these rabbit hole arguments about truth and falsity and, you know, faking and misrepresentation. And I think we just need to take the representations we've been given and try to make sense of them in the historical worlds we're studying. Right. And I think that actually, I agree with that, but I think that kind of hits a wall once you move into interdisciplinary studies where, I mean, at least the way I'm thinking about these retrospective diagnoses, let's put it this way, right? Sometimes scholars from other fields, other disciplines really do need to say that some disease was, just as an example, plague rather than like a vague disease that we won't diagnose. But that's like a different a debate for a different time, a different podcast or episode, at least. We don't have that much time left. And I, I do still want to reach one further broad point, which is that already at the beginning of your book, the acknowledgments, if I remember correctly, you're quite explicit about your own interest in, in the topic and your own life and how that intersects with the topic of your study. And maybe before we turn to that, could you tell us a bit more about why you've made these decisions? They're often not really stated in academic research materials, right? So books, articles. And so even if they're obviously there, right? These factors that influence us in our writing are, again, generally implicit, but you chose very consciously, obviously, to make these explicit. So maybe you could tell us a bit about the backstory and your decision and what underlies that? Yeah, well, I was drawn to this 
topic of study, as I mentioned in the book, because my own family has encountered sickness and disability in a couple of discrete moments. And in the course of writing the book, you know, irony of ironies, I had the scary diagnosis of cancer. And it brought me into this world of feeling like I became a part of this narrative about my experience in life that just didn't seem to fit with my own self-conception. And so there are plenty of other memoirs. Arthur Frank, the wounded storyteller, Mark Taylor has written a memoir along these lines. A number of others have also talked about this. I mean, Arthur Kleinman's illness narratives is not a memoir in and of itself, but it engages the illness narratives of others in his most recent book, The Soul of Care, is itself a kind of illness memoir. But all of these books, and I think my own is a part of that general trajectory, that general tradition, are books that kind of try to write their way out of a pretty strong and heavy-handed cultural narrative about illness. And when something happens to you, a narrative is quickly imposed upon you and you get wrapped up into this medical world that can feel very alien and foreign. In Wounded Storyteller, Arthur Frank calls it colonizing. And I thought that was such an accurate description of the way in which, you know, this biomedical behemoth, when you become entangled with it, really, you know, kind of tells you who you are. In the book, I talk about, you know, wearing the armband and needing to repeat your birthday all the time. And just the way when you go into the hospital, all of your personal accessories and clothing is removed and you're given this anonymous gown. And, you know, all the personality and the richness of human life almost gets taken away and you become a body with a problem. I wrote this book because I was just eager to find and curious about finding other ways of telling the story of sickness and disability beyond what my own cultural world was giving me, because it didn't seem to fit quite right. And there's a sense in which um, Audrey Lord puts it this way, I wanted to return myself to myself or something along those lines. That's how I felt about writing this book. There is a unique particularity to every human encounter with illness and disability. And in a sense, writing this book was a way for me as a historian of early modern Catholicism to make my own encounters with illness and disability more authentically my own and to sort of resist this imposition of the biomedical narrative. And the other thing I suppose I wanted to do in this book was really push back against the idea that we can understand the past best if we keep it at arm's length. And there's a long section in the introduction, and I return to it in the conclusion, that tries to make as powerful of an argument as I know how to make for empathy as a criterion for understanding the past. There, I know everybody's you know, really into like, and I just said it myself, historicizing, being very particular about time and place and cultural distinction and all of this, and that's crucially important, but there are some human universals. And I think if we overlook these human universals, then we miss the opportunity to understand something really fundamental about the past. I mean, it's ultimately about encounter and conversation. I think history has to be a give and take between historian and the past. Yeah, so thanks for this, Mary. And maybe as a follow-up, I would like to ask, I mean, I'm assuming that you've read at least some of these sources that you use in the book before getting diagnosed and before thinking from this perspective. Did you get the sense as you were being diagnosed and getting treated and everything, 
did the sources read differently to you at that point? Did you notice that? I mean, I can share from my perspective, right? So the epidemic narratives that I've been reading, for example, for the Justinianic plague, I got a little bit of a different sense after COVID, but it was not like super strong. I also haven't written a book about that. <laughs> so I haven't engaged maybe that closely. But from your perspective, did your situation change the way you saw the sources? I would say that I think more than that, I think the sources changed the way I saw my situation. It felt less constricting and less narrow and just more kind of infinitely malleable. I think it's Arthur Kleinman who says this, but he says that experience shifts depending on the meaning one gives illness, that meaning does matter. How we conceive of the things that we're experiencing can actually change how things feel. And so the sources and the process of writing this book profoundly changed how I went through, you know, the years of treatment that I went through and profoundly changed how I think about disability. I mean, I think that this modern narrative can feel incredibly confining. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, with the way we moderns tend to think of our world of science as, oh, we finally arrived at the truth. Like, finally, finally, we have the objective a historical truth. And we forget that we are, you know, part of this long continuum of shifts in knowledge that are imperfect. Actually, some people find it really depressing. I found it really uplifting about being in the biomedical context and the process of treatment is how little medical science actually knows. You know, you go to the doctor and they're like, well, I think based on these symptoms, I think this might be what's going on. We can't be sure. And I think that's a wonderful thing. First of all, I think it's a wonderful admission of humility. And, you know, a lot of times they're right. And it's super grateful for modern science and technology and everything that science can do for the ailing infirm body. However, I also find that wide horizon of the unknown, just a realm full of possibility, especially for just the imagination. This is the way it works for me. If I can see my world differently, it feels really different. And that makes a giant difference for living one's life, no matter you know if we're talking about sickness and disability or something else. So if I could ask one maybe short question that I think naturally follows up, how would you hope, let's say someone picks up your book, let's say even just the introduction design, what would you hope they take from it from some of your, you know, very explicit, you know, straightforward comments in the introduction as well? Yeah, I hope that they would take from it the idea that sickness and disability do not mean any one thing. And that if you're the type of person who feels confined by the narrative your culture is giving you about disability, for instance, as it's this inveterate problem that really needs to be solved. Life is not good unless you can get rid of it. If they can find in my book a pathway beyond that and a way of imagining sickness and disability as something that can be the conditions for human thriving and human flourishing, then that would be a wonderful thing. Again, I think that could make a just a profound difference in the way that one could experience one's encounter with sickness and disability. And I would hope that by looking at these narratives of the past, that one might be able to more properly put one's own kind of inherited biomedical narrative from the modern world into historical perspective and treat it lightly and think about it as, well, this is one way of thinking about sickness and disability. And I'm going to take every advantage of medical technology that I can. 
but I'm not going to get too rigidly wedded to the way my story is being told by this cultural narrative. There are other ways of thinking about it. And if I find these other ways more beneficial for my own immediate experience and my own sense of meaning in this phenomenological experience, then I have permission to make those imaginative leaps. That's what I would hope. Great. So I think that's actually a one of the more optimistic ways to wrap up the interviews that we've had on this podcast. So thank you so much, Mary, for the conversation, both your research and also the personal story and how they intersect. It's been great. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Merle. It was a real pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. So I really enjoyed that conversation for many, many reasons. But I thought one thing that stuck out was her use of the term empathy, which actually came up in our conversation previously with Jeff Resnick, right? To think about how people thought in the past and to really empathize with them as human beings. Right. And I think that's actually something that gets lost in a sense in some of the quote-unquote cutting-edge research that's being done, let's say, on the Justinianic plague, right, Merle? I mean, the emphasis on science, I mean, there's like an obvious advantage to using science and kind of like unlocking different aspects of the past. I mean, looking into ancient DNA and all that. And, And we've covered that in multiple episodes in the past. But I think in a sense, some of that discourse, if not most of that discourse, kind of loses the human experience and loses the empathy to these people in the past who experienced these things, these historical episodes. And I think actually in this regard, the episode that kind of reminded of is, I think you do probably remember this, Merle. This was one of our early episodes, I mean, probably in the first 10 or so with Chris DeVitt from South Africa on John of Ephesus and the Justinianic Plague. And even though that was an episode that we recorded like three years ago, right? And I, unlike you, have not listened to episodes again. So maybe you listened to this one. I have not. I still do remember a lot of the empathy that came across in that discussion with regards to, again, John of Ephesus, this basically churchman in the 6th century Eastern Mediterranean, and, and how he experienced an outbreak of plague, in a sense. Well, I don't remember that conversation other than we had it. It's interesting. We could have a discussion about what each of us remembers from the early days of the podcast. Maybe I should force you to do that at some point. But I think your point is well taken, right? I mean, I think, you know, this goes to the question, which she answered it how I was hoping she would answer it about retrospective diagnoses, right? That, you know, Our field is so excited that that question, quote unquote, is no longer impossible to answer, right? I mean, there's a famous article about plague before Yersin and plague after Yersin and before Yersin is fundamentally different, right? Which is to say, before you have the bacillus identified, you can't say if it's plague or not, right? And that ancient DNA came along and solved that problem. But in a sense, I think, as you just said, we're so fixated on how happy we are, to be sarcastic about it to an extent, 
about solving that problem that we've taken our eye off the ball of other things we could ask and could potentially answer. Yeah, in a sense, it's like a set of blinders, right? That of all the problems that are basically unsolvable, we tend to focus on the one that we can and maybe have solved, as in this case, the identity of what in our sources looks like plague, that it actually is plague. But by doing so, we kind of close ourselves off to all these other equally and maybe even more interesting questions that are just not really being discussed. You know, I'll say one thing, Lee. I have long, both on this podcast and off this podcast, discussed with you that one way forward is to do more cultural history of the experience of plague. And it sounds like you're finally coming around to my side. So I'm very pleased. I mean, I'm converting, Merle. I mean, no, I'm joking. I mean, it's not something I rejected earlier on. And I don't reject the scientific approach either, but I think it kind of reduces a lot of our work to a relatively narrow way of looking at things. I, I think I'm reaching that conclusion partially based on the, I would say, really huge diversity of guests we've had on the podcast over the past like three years and a hundred or so guests. Well, I'll just say, welcome to cultural history and discourse analysis, Lee. We're glad to have you here. Well, Merle, I'm still waiting for your episode on Foucault, right? I mean, that's like, what, we, you promised that three years ago. We can have a Foucault-Marx double episode. So the other thing I thought was really interesting was obviously her discussion about how explicit she is in the introduction to the book and how we talked about, obviously, her direct connection to her own life. And, you know, I thought after reading a book last week of potentially assigning the introduction. And I think I almost certainly will now because I handed out the first assignment to my method course, which is, you know, just kind of think about what is history? Why are we all here? Kind of question, short essay topic. And one of them said to me, well, can I use, you know, first person in this? And I said, well, of course you can use first person. She said, well, you know, I've never been told I can use the word I in, you know, formal history writing. And I said, I don't care, right? I said, my only objection is please don't use first person plural, right? I don't want a royal we running around your text, but I is perfectly fine. And I think this would be a good example of why. I mean, I think there is something to be said about who is writing these things, right? I mean, I'm not sure training and actual output should be the same, but if we look at the way I think we're teaching history to be, or at least most of us are teaching history to be. I mean, you're aspiring to some kind of objectivity and you're supposed to be like very impersonal, pretty distant from what you're doing. And breaking that rule, so to speak, and bringing in your individual, again, identity, ideology, questions, it's, it's often done implicitly. But doing that explicitly, I think, is very open and frank and, I mean, refreshing in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as I'm just thinking through these things off the top of my head. One thing, at least, I think university education, at least in the place I teach it, is very much about unteaching many of the things students have learned in an earlier education, right? In a sense, they're presented history 
not surprisingly, as a series of facts, right? And that you're given specific questions to go search and find answers to the facts, right? So like a classic reading comprehension type paragraph, read a thing, answer these questions, right? And that the answer is always right there. And effectively what university history is, is unlearning basically all the ways in which they learned. And one of those includes that somehow the people who write these books that you go search for answers are, are somehow perfectly objective arbiters of history, which is of course ridiculous because all the people who wrote the textbooks come from a certain background in a certain place and write in a certain way. Yeah, in a sense, that's what critical thinking actually means, right? I mean, critical thinking, both when you read these texts, when you write these texts, definitely an important skill. Now, maybe before we wrap up this episode, Merle, I thought to bring up something that you've been avoiding for quite some time, which is ChatGPT, right? This AI that, that allows students to write great essays, which may or may not be objective or not for your standards. They may or may not have the eye in them. I, I guess you can include that in your prompt and then you would see a lot of eyes. But uh, what's your take on that? On like AI in general and, and this chat GPT? And have you encountered it? Do your students know this or not? I mean, I could say that we got a statistic that 90% of students in my university, I forget if it's or know about it or have used it. I guess it's more or less the same, but it's clearly very well known at this point. So I haven't asked my students if they know about it. The faculty are talking about it. I think from my perspective, I haven't assigned anything since it essentially existed, right? Or, you know, became a very public thing, I guess I should say. So my response is to just do this semester and see what happens. And that might get me in a lot of trouble. But I don't know, right, what the numbers are. And, you know, even if 90% of students know it and have played around with it, doesn't mean 90% of your students are going to use it to give you essays, right? So that's a very different outcome. So, you know, if I'm talking about, maybe you're talking about two or three or 4% of students use it. Well, if those are the students who are going to plagiarize anyways, you were going to get in trouble for plagiarism. Do you really need to adjust entirely for that? Probably the answer is no. Now, if the answer is 25% of your students do it, then you probably say, yeah, I need to make adjustments. No, that's fair. Would you use it? I haven't. I mean, I think, you know, there's an underlying structural issue here. And I'll address that second, I think. So I'll just address your question straight on. I think there's two ways to adjust to it right? One is to ask questions in ways that make it so that there is no way to use the AI to answer the questions. And there are ways to do that, right? You can assign questions that it can't answer by effectively scrolling the internet. And the second way, right, which would take more time, and I would like to see people do this before I try it myself, because I don't want to be first generation trying this, is build it into your syllabus, right? So you could try it and assign a question, let's just say, what are the Jesuits like in early modern France, right? As your question, go through it as an exercise and have them generate chat GPT answers to that and then have them generate different answers. Yeah, I mean, my sense of this software, I guess, or AI, is that it actually fails once you get into too many details, right? I mean, for things I'm not an expert on, I don't know if you just like ask 
AI explain to me quantum mechanics or whatever, right? It gives an answer that looks good, seems to make sense. And it seems right. I mean, what can I know, right? But when I started asking it questions around my areas of expertise, I mean, it failed pretty badly. I mean, it was very easy for me to catch the mistakes. I mean, it would not be easy for me to catch those mistakes in any assignment I give. But then the assignments that are really close to my area of expertise, the ones that I've actually read much, if not most, if not all the literature on, I mean, you just see the holes and they're still pretty big. Yeah, that's why I suggest if you really want to use it, you would do that as your in-class or out-of-class exercise, right? You would say, we've been talking about the Justinianic plague for five weeks or whatever. How does it generate answers to economic effects? And then you use that as a thing to talk about. And then you could actually assign that if you wanted to, you could assign the exact same question and they would have to actually come up with their own answers, right? That's where you would use it or, you know, build it in. Yeah. And have you used it like at a personal level? I mean, either for like a professional, like writing something or like a personal, personal or whatever. I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, I haven't. From what I can tell, what it does the best at is creating corporatized university speak in particular. <laughs> so if you want it, I've seen good examples to tell you about, you know, new mission statements of a university and check through like five boxes of things you wanted to do. It gives you like, you know, 500 words that is indistinguishable from like university mission statements. That's something I would probably never write, but I actually have played with it quite a bit. I got recipes from it, which is actually, okay. it was pretty interesting. Did you uh, cook any of the stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, I cooked and it was good and probably not something I would have done otherwise. I mean, yeah, just you say, I have this, this, and this, give me like a recipe I can make based on these ingredients and it gives it. So that was good. I also experimented with like writing things like recommendation letters. I mean, not like taking its output, but seeing what it does for the output maybe rethinking my design of some of these texts, it has learned, quote unquote, from, I don't know, some very large number of other examples of these genres. It gives you, I guess, like a writing partner in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this because I promised a structural critique, which is a much longer episode. You know, Merle's thoughts on ChatGPT could be its own podcast. But it effectively the worry about it is it does solve simple things, as you said, right? So if you assign very short answer questions, right? Because let's say you're teaching four or five classes a semester every semester, and you can't take the time to do like a significant essay prompt or design a bespoke exam, right? It's going to solve those exams pretty well because they're pretty straightforward because the person grading it needs to grade it very quickly because they're teaching too many classes and they have too many students. So in my sense, what do I think it's going to end up doing is it's going to eliminate probably that type of exam, which will then just go back to like a multiple choice in class test. Yeah, I know some people in my university are kind of moving back to in class. Some are at least talking about having the next semester. So what, like July, having I basically oral exams for classes. I mean, we'll see if that happens or not, but that's like something that has been proposed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a structural 
solution for a structural problem, which is to say there aren't enough full-time faculty teaching students individually as human beings as the number of students increases and the pay for university professors goes down or remains stagnant or whatever you want to call it. And thus it solves that problem that the universities themselves have effectively created. Yeah. I mean, regardless, these are interesting times. Things are probably going to continue changing and developing along those lines. Yeah, we'll look forward to how that develops, maybe in three more years. But until then, we would like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University for funding the podcast. And we'd like to thank our great team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Verder Kanati. Until next time, stay safe. Keep masking indoors if rates are high, and let us know what you figure out with ChatGPT.